It, one of the things I, I think I enjoy most about what I get to do as a pastor is, is meeting with people and getting to hear their story and getting to hear about the different ways maybe God has worked in their life and made an impact, um, how they relate to God. It's always intriguing to me how God relates to us in such similar but unique ways in, e in each story. But one of the biggest tragedies is when I come across a person who feel like their story is completely disconnected, like there's no hope on, uh, for their story. Um, like somehow they're not at all connected to God. After all, if we're just here by random chance, each living our own life, our own stories, for our own purposes, there really isn't much hope except for maybe the, the fittest will survive a bit longer than everyone else, right? And let's be honest, that's an utterly hopeless vision of life. But what if each one of us is part of one big story? What if each one of us is part of the story of God? What if we're actually created in His image? And what if He actually gave Himself to sustain us and renew us for all time? If that's true, then every man, woman, and child has a whole lot of reason to be hopeful. For the next several weeks, we are going to be exploring the foundations of our faith in the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at the earliest account of our story. Genesis, in Hebrew, Bereshit, actually, that's not Bereshit, it's Bereshit. Uh, Genesis, it literally means beginning. Yeah, thanks Megan, you just got that. Genesis is the foundational account of God's will for our world and for our lives. Now, unfortunately, Genesis chapter 1, instead of being a text that, that leads people to unity about this one story that we're a part of and this incredible God, unfortunately, Genesis 1 has been a hotbed of controversy between people who interpret it in all kinds of different directions. Should we believe in creation or evolution? Are the two even diametrically opposed? Did creation take place in six days or six billion years or something more or something less? Now here's a little disclaimer about me. Every time I am behind this music stand that I call a pulpit, I strive to be a slave to the text. A slave to the text. I strive to get at what the text actually says and what the text actually means. Number two, on gray issues, I strive to present views that we can all hold to and still remain faithful Christians who believe in Jesus. I might have my own opinion about certain things, but I think your faith will be stronger if you make your own decisions instead of being spoon-fed by me. So an example might be uh, infant baptism. In this church, we do child dedication and infant baptism. I think scripture and, and early tradition have both have strong, strong evidences that both were practiced early on and throughout the history of the church. I think that you can find evidence in, in scripture for both cases. I don't think it's something to divide over. And so I teach both. And guess what? It's up to the parents to decide what you want to do. That's kind of the stance of the Evangelical Covenant Church as well. That's how we're going to come at Genesis. What we're going to do today is going to be kind of labor-intensive. We're going to get to the text. We're going to build a foundation for how we read Genesis together. And I promise as the weeks go on, it's going to get a lot more so what for my heart kind of stuff. All right.
Now, would you stand with me as we read Genesis 1 through 2, 3? It's quite a chunk of text, so you can follow along, or you can just close your eyes and let it wash over you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surfaces of the water. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below, the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on earth bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God said that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning. A fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is in the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you 
and to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life. I've given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. And by the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day, and sanctified it, he set it apart, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Father, this is an overwhelming account. We pray for your grace and mercy as we hear your voice in it. Lord, give me words and give us hearts to hear and receive. Amen. You may be seated. Just by a show of hands, for how many of you was that, you know, Genesis 1, kind of a familiar text, right? Most, you know, there's a lot of hands that just went up. In some ways, in some ways, that's a problem. Now, hear me on this. I think knowing your Bible is really, really important. So I'm not saying that. But when we get familiar with the text, what can happen is that we somehow think we master that text, that we totally have it down, that we know what it means. And that can sometimes lead to complacency and problems. What we have to remember about the Bible in general is that it is a very old book. It's an ancient book. And with Genesis in particular, we have a text that was written in ancient Hebrew in a time and culture very different from our own. We're also dealing with a subject matter that spans millennia. Here's one for you. Chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis deal with more time than chapter 12 of Genesis through the end of Revelation. Chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis deal with more time than chapter 12 of Genesis through today in thousands of years, right? So we're dealing with an incredibly old book from an incredibly different time and place. It spans a long, long time. Now, this week, this last week, our, our Wednesday night Bible study looked at Genesis 1 through fresh eyes. And if my old Bible study, remember when we did this years ago? But anyway, we did it again. And uh, what we did was we broke into teams of two and we looked at it through the eyes of a journalist, the eyes of a scientist, the eyes of a blogger, you know, like an online blogger, and the eyes of a musician or poet. Now, it's super interesting. Our journalists pointed out the main character is God. Pretty astute team they were. And that there was some kind of chronology in the days of creation. But the journalists had some big problems. Remember, they're reading this from a journalistic point of view. They had some big problems with Genesis chapter 1. They, they said, well, what year did this take place? Certainly a journal article would have the year that it took place. Who were the witnesses? You can't just say things and not back it up with witnesses. Well, why did God create the world this way? Where did God get the stuff to create the world? 
God, what was your inspiration was one of the, the questions they would have asked God if they could have interviewed him. So the journalists concluded that Genesis 1 is not a very satisfying document from a journalistic point of view. Okay, clear enough. Then our scientists took over. And they noticed that Genesis 1 lacks any kind of scientific language, there's no technical language in it, and there's really not a lot of rigor in, the, uh, in backing up their claims. There's no evidence or research to back up what Genesis 1 says. The language is far too vague for a scientist. What kinds of animals were created? How many? What about dinosaurs? What kind of plants were there? What was the climate like? And of course, Charlotte had to bring up, if mass cannot be created or destroyed, how did God create it all? Where did the stuff come from? Okay. Thank you, scientists. a real one in our group. So our scientists concluded that Genesis 1 was not a very satisfying scientific document. Okay. Then we looked at uh, Genesis 1 from a, a blogger's point of view. And this was pretty, pretty clear. Uh, they decided right off the bat that Genesis 1 would be a really, really boring blog. There's no opinion at all about it. It just states it as fact. There's no author that you can reply to. You can't, you can't question anything. It's just there the way it is. So, surprise, surprise, guess what? Genesis 1 is not a blog. All right. Now, Genesis 1 is, uh, got, got evaluated from musician poetic point of view. And there was some similarities there. Like a song, Genesis 1 is structured and it's stylized. There's refrain, then God said... And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, and we see this repeated every section, right? We also recognize that there's some metaphorical, kind of poetic language in Genesis 1. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters like a dove. I don't think anyone really thinks the Spirit is a dove, right? So it's metaphorical. Uh, the gathering of the waters as if maybe God was playing in a, a sandbox and made the waters go together. So some metaphorical language. But in the end, Genesis 1 is really unlike it's really unlike any English poem we have or any song that I know of. And so by reading through fresh eyes like this, we realize that we need to be careful not to impose our, what we want to get out of the text, not to impose our genres on the text. By trying to make Genesis 1 into a science document or, play, or into a journalistic article, um, we're not going to, to read it for what it really is. If we want to come close to understanding Genesis 1 and what it's saying, we need to know something about the days in which it was written and the ways in which it was written. Scott McKnight has a great book called The Blue Parakeet. And I'll just put a little aside. If you're at all interested in, in entry-level how do I read the Bible? The Blue Parakeet is one of the best books I've read for just, in layman's terms, getting at the nitty-gritty of how to read the Bible. And as soon as I get it back from Ian, I'll, I'll let you borrow it if you ask me. Um, but, but he has this great axiom in that book. And he says, you know, God spoke to different people throughout time in a language and in a way that they could understand. So one of the things McKnight says is, God spoke to Abraham in Abraham's days, in Abraham's ways. Uh, God spoke to David in David's days and in David's ways. He spoke to Jesus in Jesus' days and Jesus' ways, although Jesus is timeless. So. Uh, and so we need to understand the days and ways of the time when Genesis 1 was written. And what we're really talking about is genre, right? In our days and ways, there are normative ways to communicate things. For example, there is a way 
to send a text message, right? Ashley, there's a anyway. There, there is a way in our in our culture to send a text message. You know, if if you write like LOL on there, right? I think that's that's a real term, right? That uh, laugh out loud. Got, got it. Laugh out loud. But, you, you know, if you write LOL on a research paper or something like that, you're probably going to get a bad grade. But there is a, a way to write a text message. There's a way to tell a story with film. There's a way to write a resume. The resumes, there's, you know, on my computer thing, there's maybe six or eight templates. But basically, if I hand in a resume, you know that this is a resume and not a piece of fiction or whatnot. So there's a way to do different structures of literature. It could be fiction, that's right. That was a bad example. Maybe your resume. <laughs> well, guess what? In the ancient Near East, there was a way to write a creation epic. There was a standard format of how you react, write a creation story. And there's many creation stories out there that exist, but a couple that I've read are the Enuma Elish and some of the Egyptian stories. They're lyrical. They're metaphorical. They're epic in scale. And they're a lot like Genesis 1. Why do you think that is? Much of uh, scholarly work has Moses being maybe the original writer of Genesis 1. Has Moses being one of the people that, that started working on this account. He received the revelation from God and put it down. Now, Moses was raised by an Egyptian princess, wasn't he? He had a top education in that house. He would have had exposure to the great stories and religions of the day. So when Moses receives God's revelation, how might God speak to Moses? What were Moses' days and ways? Moses recorded the account in the genre that his contemporaries would have understood. And as we work through the text, what we're going to see is that God and Moses are up to something. They may be using the genre of the day, but the Genesis creation story that we have in our Bible is unlike any of the other ancient Near Eastern stories. And we're going to find out how as we walk through. Now, I'm going to say just one little thing. We're going to do like a, a flyover of Genesis 1. And for some of you, it's going to be way too much information. You're going to want me to shut up. And for some of you, it's going to drive you nuts that I'm not saying more about the things you want me to talk about. So after service, I will be free in there. And then maybe we can go to Boundary Bay or something afterwards and talk about this stuff. I'm going to be completely open for hours after this because this is, this is so much fun. And I've got 26 pages of research notes that I can't possibly talk about right now. So anyhow... <laughs> We recognize from the very beginning, uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that God creates out of his own will to create, and he creates with a word. He creates just with his word. Now this is an extremely important detail for two main reasons. First of all, we see that God is creating what he wants to create. He's not coerced into creating the world. It's not an accident. It's not a byproduct. It's just he wants to do it and so he does it. He has a purpose and a plan for his creation. To put it another way, no one's twisting his arm to create us and to create the world. And this is very important because in other creation stories in the ancient Near East, creation always took place in the context of violence between rivaling gods fighting each other. 
trying to spite one another. In these stories, creation is just an afterthought. While in Genesis, we see God creating without conflict, and he's initiating the process. Second reason it's important that God created purely out of his own will and with the word is that it not only displays his power, but it shows his essential distance between creator and created. You see, in the ancient Near Eastern stories that would have been contemporary with Moses, creation is a result of multiple deities fighting for power. And the created order is usually out of one of the dead bodies of these defeated deities. So in the Enuma Elish, the god, the god Marduk slays his rival Tiamat. And then humans are created out of this nasty soup of Tiamat's blood. It's really not a very... Uh, really, really not a very high view of humanity there. This type of thinking that creation was, came out of the carcass of a dead god is what has led many people to panentheism. Not pantheism, but panentheism means all in God. And what that, what that means is uh, a panentheist would say God is in this candle, that this candle is somehow divine, that the trees somehow have God in them, that your dog is somehow divine because God is in it. And what Genesis 1 is saying is that that's not true, that God creates out of his own will and that God creates with a word. He did not put himself in inanimate objects or in animals. So there's a distance, but... He declares that all things are good. So they're not worthless. They're just not divine. And that's a very important distinction that Genesis 1 makes. And it's very unlike the other creation stories of this time. Here's another observation. Genesis 1 doesn't necessarily seem to be chronological doesn't necessarily seem to be chronological. Um, he creates the light that says light's created before the sun, moon, and stars. It's kind of different. The designation of days seems to be more figurative than literal. There's no definite article. There's no, in Hebrew, uh, the definite article is our word the. Okay, so, uh, and there was evening and there was morning and we would say the first day. In Hebrew, it's not the first day, it's a day. That's a huge distinction. Uh, in, there was evening, there was morning, a second day. There was evening, there was morning, a third day. There's no the in the Hebrew. So we don't know that this is necessarily six literal 24-hour periods or just a day. It, it, it's, it's dechronologized. The order is in terms of theme, not necessarily time. So in verses 6 through 8, God separates the waters from the sky and the waters from the sea. And here, the theme is boundaries. God is in control. God separates these forces of nature, where in all the other creation stories around Moses' time, these forces are actually gods, and they're in constant battle with each other. There's a god of the sky battling the god of the sea. But here, in our creation story, there's one god who is over the forces of nature, and he establishes the boundaries. Another way to show that God has absolute authority over his creation is that he names his creation. In the ancient Near East, if you had the power to name something, you had power over it. In the other creation stories, the sun has a name, the sea has a name. Already, it doesn't come up in their stories how they got those names. But in the, in the Genesis 1 creation story, there's one creator... 
and he gives names to all the natural elements. It shows his power over them. In verses 9 through 13, God creates the dry land and the seas. And on the land he plants plants with seed and fruit trees. And again, this is far from being a scientific or chronological text. The plants are created before the sun. I mean, unless they didn't need photosynthesis, that doesn't quite work. Uh, but notice, it's God who causes the growth. It's God who causes the fruitfulness as opposed to a fertility God. Or our version of this pagan idea, Mother Nature. Mother Nature, that's a, that's a frequent term in our culture. Right? Mother Nature did this, or Mother Nature does it, does it this way. Or look out for Mother Nature. Um, there's, nature isn't really a person. It's really not your mom. Uh, it, this, this is saying that God is over these things. That nature and forces of nature are created things, not created beings. Verses 14 through 19 deal with the creation of the sun, the moon, and the stars. And this is, I know it just seems like, oh, that would be a natural thing to put in a creation story. But here's why that's so important. In, the, in, in like the Babylonian, Canaanite, Akkadian uh, tales of creation, the sun, moon, and stars are the principal deities in those stories. They're the principal gods. Here, we have Yahweh creating these things, not gods, creating a sun and moon and stars. He is God over them, as opposed to rival gods all fighting each other. He has created things, and he says that these things are good. Now, the Hebrew word for good, tov, doesn't mean necessarily always morally good. So it's not like he created the sun, moon, and stars and said, oh, they're really good good things. He, he's talking about beautiful, pleasing to him. So when God says, and it was, and he created it, and it was so, and he, he declares it good, he's saying that it's beautiful to him. It brings God pleasure. So, you know, I'm, a couple days ago, you guys know I don't like spiders at all. Corey says, Chris, spider. And when she's, the less hysterical she is, I know the bigger the spider because she's just petrified. So I go in the kitchen. And I mean, it's one of those like wolf looking ones. I don't know what you really call those, but it, I mean, just lumbering like clumsily. It's so big. And I'm, I'm like, just like a little girl all of a sudden, like with this broom. And, uh, and I'm thinking like, God, why did you make that? Part of the, the point of Genesis one is that it doesn't, my questions and our questions about why God does what he does, they're really irrelevant. I'm bringing that into Genesis 1. Genesis 1 isn't trying to answer that question. Genesis 1 doesn't answer the why question. doesn't answer the how question. It answers the who question. Who did this? And for some reason, that lumbering nasty spider brings God pleasure. He calls it good too. And that's got to be enough for me as a person of faith. And I think he's okay that I squished it. I hope. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe not. I'll talk to Ryan. He's your ethics guy on that. But, man, it was self-defense, dude. I, it's coming out. It's offending my woman. As if it, okay. <laughs> uh, God loves his creation. It pleases him. He calls it good. In verses 20 through 23, God creates, you know, the sea things and the birds. Here's a really important part in verses 20 through 23. He creates the sea monsters. 
He creates the sea monsters. I don't know exactly what that is, but I do know this. The same, uh, the same words as used in the ancient Near Eastern myths, that the sea had these monsters. They represented chaos. And the monsters in the sea were the gods of the sea. Here, God is in control. He even creates the sea monsters. It shows his authority over them. They display his power. You know, and I don't know if he's talking about some dinosaur thing that, you know, the ones with the flippers and the big belly, like, or, or maybe some awesome sperm whale or some massive creature. I don't know what he's talking about. But we do know, and it, and it says this in, um, in Job, how he just takes, he takes pleasure in the sport of it, in, in, in the power of these creatures. He created them. So they are not some kind of rival to him. And incidentally, this whole deal with water and chaos, that's a metaphor that goes way beyond ancient Israel. It goes into um, even in Jesus' day. So when he's walking on water, you know why that's so significant? Yeah, it'd be a really cool party trick and impress your friends. But the big deal about that is only God can subdue the waters. Even the fishermen, I mean, they had a, a great respect for the water, but there was some kind of almost supernatural fear people had of the water. They thought that, you know, the abyss was at the bottom, that there were creatures in there, that there was deities in there that could harm you. And the only person in, in Hebrew scripture that has any control over that chaos is Yahweh, the creator, the living God. So when Jesus the Christ gets out and he's walking, he, he calms the storm with one word and he walks on the sea, that's a statement because he's doing something only God can do. Goosebumps. God goes on and he creates the cattle and the larger land animals. And finally we see that God created human beings. Genesis tells us that humanity, male and female, made in God's image. In the ancient Near Eastern text, man, humanity, is made uh, for the simple reason of being slaves of the gods. All of their stories are about the same. They make human beings to serve the gods, to do manual labor, to make them temples. In fact, Babylon um, is created like a ziggurat. It's a, it's, their city is a temple to their god Baal. And they believe that that's why they were created, to, to feed their gods. Their gods had to be fed, so their sacrifices were actually, they believed, food for their gods. This is the only creation story of this era that has anything good to say about humanity. That you are made in the living God's image. You have intrinsic value. That he places us over, to be caretakers over his creation. And I've got to be really careful not to, to take that tack right now. Because I'm devoting all of next week to the idea of what it means to be made in God's image. I'm going to talk about us next week. This week is devoted to just God. So... Just know that you're, you're made in God's image, and that is more than I could possibly unpack right now. So, God created. He looked out over everything, and He declared it all very good. Boker Tov. I'm going to learn some Hebrew to say, Boker Tov. Boker Tov. That means very good, very pleasing to Him, very beautiful in His eyes. And finally, we see that God rested. Did God really need to rest? Did He really need, after six days of work, to, to take a nap on the seventh day? The seventh day rest is really nothing to do with the amount of time it took God to do anything. 
check out the significance of the number of seven. Seven in the ancient Near East, the days and ways Moses would have written, Moses would have been surrounded by these kinds of texts. Seven is a number of completeness. In Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, God is mentioned 35 times, a multiple of seven. Earth is mentioned 21 times, a multiple of seven. Heaven and firmament, 21 times. The line, and it was so, 21 times. God saw that it was good, seven times. Completeness, completely good. Baal's temple, the, the Canaanites' rival God, built in seven days. Israel's temple to God, later on, built in seven years. Israel's uh, uh, creation, creation, God's living temple, seven days, seven days. So whether or not this is actually a literal seven 24-hour periods or a literary seven days, the idea is of perfection, of completeness. And I just want to unpack this idea of creation being God's temple, just real briefly. All of this architectural imagery, why does he use that kind of imagery in Genesis 1? Foundations of the earth, firmament and vault, he's using engineering terms, pillars of the earth. Later on in scripture we see that heaven is the throne of God and earth is his footstool of his feet. No building can contain the living God. Not even a planet. But the, the literary structure seems to imply that he made creation, this place, to be his living temple. What does that do for how do we treat this place? What are some of the implications if we're all made in God's image of how we treat each other? little primer for next week. So, since Genesis 1 doesn't really tell us specifically how long or how God created, this is not a reason to divide over. I think that there's room in this church and the church, big C around the world, for people who think God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days, and there's... There's room in that same building, in the same community, for people who believe that God initiated some process and it took a long, long time. Do you know why? Because the Bible doesn't really speak clearly to those issues. The Bible, in Genesis 1, is not a scientific document. It's not a blow-by-blow -blow journalistic document. It's a polemic against rival religions during Moses' time saying, No, there is one God, and He made heaven and earth, and He made you too. And you have a lot more worth than coming out of some Tiamat's dead body blood or being created just to serve some pretend gods. I think what we need is a serious dose of humility in the church. Because where scripture isn't clear about certain things, I don't think those are hills to die on. After all, Genesis is not intended to prove God created anything. It's intended to show which God created. You have to remember that these issues of modernism and scientific and proving God, that was never an issue in Moses' day. Everybody assumed there was a God. The question was, which one was real and how many are there? And what Genesis 1 is referencing is saying there's one true God and he actually has a name. 
And in chapter 2, we learn that that name is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. So what can we, if we can't say all of this stuff about Genesis 1, what can we say positively about it? Well, we can say it's a stylized, poetic account that tells us at least four very important, very solid things. One, God created the heavens and the earth, you and I, every plant, animal, all of it, but he is not the creation, okay? That's one thing that we can positively say. He created everything, but he is not the creation. And that prevents us from slipping into deifying and praying to trees and rocks and things like that. Number two, the things he created are very good. The things he created are very good. God didn't just create and, 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 and let the world spin and then walk away. He created. He sustains. That's why I asked Brian to read the Colossians passage. All things were created through him and for him. And, and then what does it say? He sustains all things. And you know who this is talking about is Jesus. See, a lot of times we, we separate because we think God, in the beginning God created heavens and the earth. And it's almost like we kind of forget our Trinitarian theology. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were created through Him. And apart from Him, nothing has been created. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. This is Jesus, our Lord, who is at creation, who is the agent of creation. He not only created, but He sustained. So, I bet you never thought about this. Maybe you have. Genesis 1 is full of grace. Genesis 1 is full of good news. That the God who, who willed creation because he wanted to and wasn't coerced is, is dedicated to it. He's somehow connected to it. He will sustain it for all time. And if you felt disconnected, like you're not part of that bigger story, there is great hope in that. Because the God who's powerful enough to do to make this place with the word is powerful enough to sustain it and carry us through in a good way. God is gracious toward us. Number three, humanity has a special role in creation, a special role in God's story. You know what that means? Is that you have a special role in God's story. You have a special role in God's story. Next week's going to be all about our special role in God's story. But I hope that that warms your heart. I hope it gives you a little twinge of, wow, I've got purpose. I don't know what that purpose all is yet. It's part of the process. But you're not just floating on your own. You're not just here to pursue the American dream. But we're here to be part of this larger, incredible story of God. And fourth... And this is really good news. God has a good will toward his creation, and he will sustain it. Listen to this from theologian Walter Brueggemann. God and his creation are bound together by the powerful, gracious movement of God toward that creation. This text, talking about Genesis 1, announces the deepest mystery. And here's that deep mystery. God wills and will have... A faithful relation with earth. 
The text invites the listening community, that's us, to celebrate that reality. The binding between God and creation is irreversible. God has decided it. The connection cannot be nullified. No amount of BP oil spills can nullify the connection between God and His temple and His image bearers. No amount of sin can damage His will for the final outcome. Genesis 1 is a proclamation of hope. It's good news. It means that our planet and every living thing is created and sustained by the living God and that He will care for it for all time. The way He created was through Jesus. The way He sustains it is through Jesus. And the way He redeems us and will recreate this world in the end is through Jesus. His death and resurrection. The only way to miss out on this good news is not to trust it. Hey, would you pray with me? Jesus, I think of you as Savior and Lord so often I forget at times that you are the Creator as well. Thank you for this word that reminds us that you not only created, but you deeply love and are, find, you find deep pleasure in what you've created. That you've made a decision long before I was born, long before any of us were around. You've made a decision and willed to create us and vowed your faithfulness to us. You didn't just say these things or have Moses writing them down in his days and ways, but you showed us in your death and resurrection. Thank you for inviting us into your story. Where we've walked our own way and thought we knew of a better ending to the story help us to repent to turn around to follow you to place our trust in you Lord I know that there are so many things that can happen in a life that build up barriers to trusting you and that's something that no preacher or talking head can break through but we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you'd release faith. Help those who are struggling to trust, to find grace in having faith. And Lord, for those who have trusted a long time, I pray that you would take us to even a deeper place of belief and knowing you that we would feel like we never really trusted before. Take us to new depths and challenges 
that thrusts us into your hands.